because we are looking to um, to have certainty from an instrument that's that's really inventing what it is it's trying to to measure, trying to find. Thanks again so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times Podcast. I hope you've been doing well. I know it's been a little while since we've put a new episode up, but I'm excited to share the most recent discussion I had with a few colleagues of mine um, that really springs from uh, considerations of the scandal surrounding the Harvard academic Francesca Gino. Um, If you haven't, you know, had any familiarity or or heard about that, um, you know, good on you. That's probably a good thing. Uh, it's not that huge of a story, but within academic circles and in some of the press, it's it's been covered um, a bit. But as we get to in the episode and our discussion, um, I think, you know, it this scandal or this case of, you know, fraudulently presenting data, doctoring data and all these things are part and parcel to a much larger set of issues that um, we get into with my guests today. Um, so I'm going to just keep this short. Uh, we do a little um, rehash of the um, case involving Professor Gino at the beginning of the episode, so there's no need to really get into a summary here. I'm just going to take a few moments to introduce our guests today, um, and then we will get right into the conversation. First, I would like to welcome Professor Lydia Wilkes. She is an assistant professor and writing program administrator at Auburn University. Um, she studies cultural rhetorics, writing program administration, and intersections of rhetoric and violence. Um, her publications include Rhetoric and Guns, which she co-edited with Nate Kruder and Ryan Scanal. Uh, that looks like a really fascinating book, uh, especially quite important considering things that are going on, particularly in the U.S. uh, with guns and violence and and discourses around guns and violence. So I'm I'm looking forward to checking that out myself. Um, Also today we have with us the one and only Ira Allen, who is now, I think, making his third appearance here on the show. Um, It's always great to have Ira on. He's such a a thoughtful and insightful person. Um, I wasn't able to track down a bio from Ira, so uh, and I had lost a copy of the one I had, so I'm kind of winging it here. But um, you know, uh, I, he's the kind of person now at this point. He's he's a regular on the show, so he doesn't need much of an introduction. Um, all of that said, uh, Ira Allen is an associate professor in the English department at Northern Arizona University. His research and writing covers a wide range of areas and important intersections uh, between rhetoric, ethics, and politics and political philosophy. Um, He is author of a book entitled The Ethical Fantasy of Rhetorical Theory, published by Pittsburgh University Press. Um, And I believe he is currently in the process of completing a new manuscript for a book entitled Panic Now. So, Um, I'm really excited to um, get to the conversation. So thank you so much, as always, for joining us. Um, Please, if you haven't, subscribe to the Substack site, subscribe to the podcast through iTunes or Spotify, um, what have you. Um, It's really, you know, just a joy to be able to do this. And I really do appreciate all your interest and support. Thanks so much. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation. 
Okay, Lydia Wilkies and Ira Allen, thanks so much for joining us here at the Interesting Times podcast. Hey, thanks, Kevin. Thanks very much, Kevin. All right. Um, and so, you know, thanks for coming. And I ha- we haven't recorded an episode in a while. And um, I've been busy, as I'm sure everyone has been with the semester and so forth. But uh, I have, I guess, uh, it's maybe not the the best way to think about, um, you know, designing one's uh, podcast output or or whatever creative output. But every now and then something in the news comes along, and it really sparks my interest maybe somewhat my ire. Um, and I dig in a little deeper and I'm like, I really want to talk to somebody about this. And I, and I contacted Ira, who was so kind to put me in touch with uh, Lydia. And here we are. And so uh, this is kind of on the one hand, uh, this episode is kind of sparked from the controversy surrounding the Harvard academic uh, Francesca Gino, who was found to be engaging in some pretty brazen, fraudulent activity in terms of her research and, and data manipulation. And so that's kind of really the proximate cause for this episode being recorded. But um, in talking to Ira and and getting to know Lydia and and discussing the episode, um, really, that's not what we're looking to do today is kind of rehash that. Um, So uh, hopefully, I will just lay out briefly um, the, you know, what happened and, and what this episode is about. And then we can kind of move together and discuss some of the implications above and beyond the the doctoring and the, of data and the fraudulent activity and really get into some of um, the work Gino does and this kind of more broadly um, under the rubric of kind of nudge paradigm of, of social science research that has really, for better or for not, blossomed in the last several decades as a, a kind of cottage industry that crosses over between uh, mainstream academia and the the kind of business culture and business um, organizational behavior and, and stuff like that. So um, briefly put, um, and I think I've already kind of hit some of the major points. Um, Francesca Gino was a, a really big figure um, within academic circles. If you haven't heard of her, that you know, don't that's not um, surprising. But within people who are part of a certain academic culture, um, you know people who are also, uh, you know, at the forefront of this kind of idea of using certain research in the social sciences to optimize behavior within businesses, to optimize behavior in individual lives. Um, She was a major, major figure, had a host of very um, significant publications. Some of these publications are the ones that were found to have their data doctored. I will put a link to the people who run the blog who kind of did the, the grunt work to really point out the pretty obvious ways that the, the data was doctored and, you know, and, and kind of set it up. There's really no other explanation for that. So if you want to kind of go down that road, I will put a link to that in the show notes. Um, but uh, as I mentioned, you know, this whole episode kind of really came out of not actually the data scandal, which I don't find that surprising. And I would guess, um, you know, that it's probably a, the the you know, kind of tip of the iceberg that there's probably a lot of this sort of other shenanigans afoot. But more than I started looking at some of the studies that have been retracted that were part of this, and it really just struck me. Um, and I don't know, I don't want to be, I don't, I'm, this isn't about criti- criticizing Francesca Gino, and I, I have, I'm sure she's a, a, a nice person um, and, and so forth. I, I don't have any ill will towards her, and we, I've made tons of mistakes, so who am I to judge? But uh I'm going to say that I more to the sense that I just found the work to be really 
you know, not good, <laughs> like really, really just like in terms of just, I, I come out of the social sciences. I'm not a big believer in like social science as like a, a, a making a science of, of society or human beings, but I, I've been trained to think about the world in those kinds of ways and studied, you know, I- intermediate to somewhat advanced statistical analysis. And so I'm not unfamiliar. And like, I really just started looking at these studies and I'm like, the problem really isn't, um, that she's, you know, necessarily doctoring data or, or, or the bigger problem is that these studies are, are really lacking. And that led me to contact Ira, who then contacted Lydia. And here we are. So um, first and foremost, I want to turn it over to Lydia and Ira and, and just any general reactions or any thoughts. I've kind of shared my thoughts about the, the whole kind of episode around this and, and what it means. Um, so I would like to hear anything um, you had to say or thoughts on this. Well, so one of the things that's interesting to me at the core of this, and and it's actually, I would say also, and in some ways almost even more at the core of the resignation of the uh, Stanford president, Mark Tessier Levine, um, handily for us on this podcast just a few days ago, right. um, <laughs> uh, a- after uh, some of his research was found to be manipulated. But at the core of this scandal, like all the others before it, is this this notion that there is, and you t- you hit on this, there is some transcendent language that would stand above ordinary human experience and direct us, tell us in a simple and certain way what to do. And the closer we get to like general sociality, the fuzzier that gets. But it's this, we really, really, we want somebody to tell us what to do. (laughs) And we want to know that they really know. And, And I think like that, to me, that's at the heart of this is we want somebody to know. Hmm. Not to be overly sort of psychoanalytic about it, but it is, it really is ripe for Lacanian analysis, right? We, hmm. There is a sujet, supposé savoir. There must be somebody who really knows. Right. And, and, and a lot of, anyways, a lot of public culture around academia, because that's where I think this and the Tessier-Levine thing kind of intersect. Today happens in one or another business adjacent space where somebody um, invokes the language of science to tell us how to live basically. Right. Um, and then that is invariably somewhere along the line turns out to be lacking because of course nobody knows right. how to live. Well, yeah, I think there is that kind of psychoanalytic part of like, there's this deep human desire. And, and in some ways you can, you know, tie this into like the, the enlightenment project or certain aspects of the enlightenment project of like, how can we, tra- how, you know, we need to transcend all these superstitions and we need to get to the facts. And you know, if we just get a whole, you know, boatload of facts, we'll know what to do. And I think we're still living in that under those parameters centuries on. But there is also kind of more of the, the, the you know, for lack of a better term, kind of Marxian take that, you know, I want someone to tell me what to do that won't cost me any money, <laughs> which is another, that won't, you know, that won't require a specific, like dedicated effort to transfer resources in, in a way. And, and I think there's, there's an aspect of that too. But let, let's get Lydia uh, into this, please. Um, sure. Yeah. There's there's a as just picking up on on what Ira was saying. There's a, a real desire for 
Um, one way to put it would be to expertise, to, to say that science has the answers because science is transcending our human foibles somehow through, through the method um, by which it's conducted or, or the way it's reported, uh, that somehow we've gone above and beyond our suspicions and our old ways and we're, we're thoroughly modern now, right? Uh, and that this is really desirable. And so, again, it's understandable that people want to put their faith in that and that it gets um, spun the way it does in business culture. I think it's also unsurprising that it happens in academia as well. Um, I, I do wonder, though, uh, I think it's curious that this is Harvard. Stanford has come up as, as places where this is happening. And I, I do wonder if certain institutions attract this kind of behavior. Right. That's a Yeah. Or, um, you know, are willing to um, kind of not focus on potential issues with this because, you know, and there was another big scandal in, in a much different kind of capacity at USC about, you know, there's, you find stories, um, there academia is rife with stories, particularly at these prestigious U S institutions. Um, USC really wanted to become like a, a prestigious unit, you know, institution and they spent all of this money. And one of these doctors that was working in their like medical program was an absolute monster and they just ignored it for years. Right. I don't, I, I don't remember the specific details, but that's the general upshot. And so I think Lydia is onto something that, um, there is this pressure to produce results. And it, and in some ways, that's, you know, I, I noted to you guys in our in our pre-show discussion, I mean, that that's the subtitle of the big book that Francesca Gino put out, right? Like, why it pays to break the rules and at work and in life. And, um, you know, I think this is obviously supposed to be somewhat of a little like irreverence. And like, and I don't think it's, you know, necessarily a, a screed on like, <laughs> breaking the rules. But nonetheless, I mean, like, I think, Lydia, that that gets to your point, right? That there there is a certain kind of um, uh, institutional pressure to produce results that leads to very strong career. I mean, because, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in that game. But I mean, for you know, you guys can... We, how do you, how do you think this ties into the kind of pressure on faculty to produce quote unquote results like actionable results well i think there's two there's for me there's there's two like key things there one is um without question in a system that i mean and this is what's funny about her book right it naturalizes what is in fact a systemic thing uh, this is not a function of being, right? It's not like in general, in all systems, it pays to break the rules. It's like, no, there's some systems that really reward that and maybe some kinds of institutions to Lydia's previous point. And there's other systems that don't reward that and a system that um, the its mechanism of operation, its core logic is founded on dispossession via colonialism um, and uh, speculation uh, as the only way that capital can be realized. Such a system is exactly the sort of system that you would expect right. to pay people for breaking the rules. Of course it does. Right. I mean, that's like literally its core systemic organization. It's like break all the rules that you would think of as more or less ethical rules and also spend all of your money on things that are speculative, that are that are, I mean, in, in the best case, that's that drives innovation, it drives creativity, as is the core conceit of of uh, one of Gino's papers. Um, but anyway, so that's the one thing. It's is that there's a kind of a naturalizing, and that's one of the bad things about a certain kind of sciency dis discourse. It's not that 
the conclusions are necessarily um, uh, uh, wrong or, or that the experiments are badly designed necessarily, although I kind of agree with your qualms in this case, Kevin. Mm. But it's that it naturalizes a certain kind of system that is not, in fact, universal. It's just one sort of system. And then it discovers, quote unquote, mm. scientifically, that indeed this system forwards exactly the sorts of things that of course it forwards because right. that's the sort of system that it is. But it does all that without actually naming and working through in a rigorous or substantive theoretical way what in fact that core logic of the system is. And that's how it naturalizes that system. You know, before we, you know, because there's a few things I wanted to throw to you guys and kind of parlay this this initial discussion. And before we do that, I do want to, because I have said I think you know the work is pretty bad, and and that's a that's a you know a, a significant claim. Yeah, well, and and I want to explain like some of the ways I think it's bad, and it doesn't mean that you know everything she does is useless or so. I don't want to turn this into some like sort of hate fest. That's not. But I, 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 again, I went through graduate school. I was, you know, literally trained to like look at these things in certain ways. And when I see people who are at the kind of apex, and it's not just her, but but quite a few others, and they are putting out work that I find, you know, if I turned in this kind of reasoning in grad school, I, I, I really know a lot of my professors are like, you can't say this because of this, right? To give you an example, and this is one that really stood out to me. So she had this, I, you know, she and her co-authors, um, had this idea that, um, you know, isn't it interesting that perhaps like, you know, there's, I guess everyone's talking about polarization and, and, and so forth and, and why people can't uh, look at opposing views. And that's a, that's a big thing. And, you know, a, a lot of the commentary is focused on that. And it's, this, it's certainly important in its own way. But they said, okay, well, let's do a study. And we have this hypothesis that arguing against your, position like I like Joe Biden and going out and trashing Joe Biden or I like Donald Trump and, and being forced to like trash Donald Trump, for example, um, will make one feel actually a, a qualitative state of being unclean. Like maybe you've gone out for a run, you're all like sweaty and you know, you don't feel unclean. It's gonna produce that kind of feeling. Okay, that's kind of interesting. I don't know. I, I guess, you know, I don't yeah, you know, that's an sure. interesting but but here's where the, the the you know the devil in the detail. So the study, the one that was retracted, um is that um, they to get at this question of feeling of cleanliness? And, and I'm, 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 I read the study. I really did read the paper, so I'm not just you know cherry picking here. Um, it says that they asked participants after being compelled to argue against something they didn't believe in or something, or argue against something they believed in. Um, they were asked to look at pictures of soap, like you know, for baths, like ba bathing soap and, and shampoo. And they were asked to look at seven pictures and rate how appealing those pictures of soap were to them. And then, you know, based on the relative level of appealingness, like one to seven, I think the scale was, that was used to say that we can now tell that's a measure for how unclean people felt. And I, I mean, I was just like, what? You can't, like, I, I and I'm just like, you know, I, I feel like I'm like the, you know, if you've seen the movie Big, like there's that scene where Tom Hanks is like sitting at the, the board table and he's like, I don't get it. Like, I don't understand that. I don't know. So that's one. And then the other one that like was really a, perhaps even a, a bigger stretch for me was, um, and, and this is probably a, a more important one because I've come to find this is actually a fairly common 
um, mechanism, an instrument, like that's the term used in, you know, an instrument, a way to measure something, right? And an instrument to measure a person's creativity that's commonly used in these studies and was used in one of these retracted studies, right, was they ask someone in one minute to name all of the uses for a newspaper. And that is supposed to tell us how creative someone is. Now, I don't know. I mean, maybe. But I kind of laugh to myself because I'm not a super creative person in in the ways that we would often think of like creativity. I'm not I'm not like that. I know some very creative, like super talented artists and other creative people. And like most of the people that I know that I would describe as like super creative would just be like, get the F out of here. Like, I'm not telling you anything like that. You know? <laughs> like, the most creative people would just scoff at being put to this like stupid task. For no good reason. So, um, yeah, and 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 it kind of getting at the bigger issue. So, like, she doctored the the data was doctored, and that should be clear. Like, none of her co-authors have been implicated. She's the kind of so that it's not to again just tag on her, but the the, the standing is now that this is pretty much all tied to her own um, actions. None of her co-authors have been implicated, which is important to note. Um, you know, just to be full disclosure, uh, is that like. What the study ended up finding, because once they adjust the kind of P score, which is a measure of like how much, you know, how much influence these things have was was nothing. And it's like, because, of course, you're measuring like it's telling you that how someone feels about pictures of soap has no effect on like whether or not they argued for or against something they believe in. So it's like, yeah, you get what you expect <laughs> because you're measuring how people feel about pictures of soap. And I, I think the same. <laughs> I mean, you are. That's what you're making. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Okay, okay. So that's... I actually don't. I don't. Hold on, no, no, just stop a sec. Because I'm not sure that I'm going to actually like totally. I might surprise you. Uh, I'm not sure that I'm going to actually totally agree uh, uh, with the broad cloth dismissal here. But I want to make sure first, though, that I'm tracking the logic. So your point is. When you start with such bad instruments right. and you're trying to to get meaningful results or statistically significant results, you're going to have a real problem. And so it's not that shocking that somewhere along the line, people who are doing that are going to just have to make some stuff up. Right. I mean, that's the basic, right? If you go to, and more, uh, the more uh, generic version of that, the less like scandal makers version of that is just general p hacking you start off with some some sort of dubious dubious instruments in the first place and um they don't give you significance in the area you're hoping for so you just start like well what other what other good p values might we get here yeah. are there others true and, and so anyway so i just want to i just want to make sure that i was tracking your logic yeah. Yeah, go on well, but no, i'm no, yeah that's my my you know I'll, I'll i'll wrap up my my uh rant uh informed rant i shall call it um and just saying that like i think and it's the same with the newspaper one i, I just think that's an absurd way to say that you're measuring someone's creativity and this is what i learned in you know my graduate training is that this that's the ultimate question are you measuring what you say you're measuring because everything flows from that, and um, what the why I think this ties into it. Again, these are one studies among many. Is is that it gets to a particular way of trying to establish, and this goes back to what Lydia was talking about. Some, 
you know, concrete, tangible thing. And like, you know, these really smart scientists at, at Stanford and, and Harvard have like told us that, it, you know, X and Y are related. And this gives us some insight into how to organize our business or how to organize our advertising campaign. And like, it's actionable, but it's really a, a kind of house of cards because it's, it's resting upon this idea that what, you know, what is, what, again, even if that data wasn't doctored and like they really did find that like people were looking at soap and that, that like there was some relation between their responses to soap and arguing against something they believe in. Um, I, I, could that really say that like it's giving them a qualitative sense of uncleanliness? I, I, you know, that's a big claim just based on like, look at seven pictures and write one to seven. I, and these are all Harvard undergraduates. We all work, we all three of us work with undergraduates. I mean, probably a lot of them, like, I don't know, two, 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 two. You know, <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, let's just go take it. Yeah. So I, I don't know. So Lydia, um, you know, please jump in with anything. I, I've kind of, that's, that's kind of where my launching point, because I think it goes much deeper. So I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to just sit here haranguing the studies, but Lydia or Ira, if you have any thoughts on that, and then we can kind of hopefully take a, take a, a step back. But I do think it's important to give an idea of how I, you know, how this all came in to my mind, at least. Sure. Yeah. This uh, I, I don't have uh, social science training, but what I know of social science tells me that this this doesn't track. So uh, I am actually kind of curious. I already hear about how you 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 had some fuzziness about this, and uh, whereas I'm just kind of nodding along and saying, "Okay, this doesn't really make sense to me either." So I'm curious what you were thinking there. Well, I'm just <sighs> all right. I'm going to say it because it's the only way I have of saying anything in a roundabout and long winded way. Um. Uh. uh... <laughs> I remember before I'd read much Rawls coming to the conclusion that Rawls was an idiot. Uh, now, if you haven't read much Rawls, let's say you read uh, an excerpt from Theory of Justice, uh, especially if you read an excerpt from Theory of Justice about the original situation, you could easily come to the conclusion that Rawls was an idiot who believed in the fairy tale world that had no relationship to reality. But Rawls isn't actually an idiot. And if you read all of the theory of justice, he obviously knows that. He's trying – I don't think – I'm not a Rawlsian. I don't think that what he's doing is correct. I have my own sort of grounds for disagreement with it. But it's not idiotic. But at a glance, it is idiotic. It's only when you like sit down and you're like, oh, okay, well, what exactly is happening here? Or, or Habermas on communicative rationality, right, Lydia? I mean we we sometimes – in our field, sort of dog on Habermas a little bit because it's like, come on, yeah. <laughs> come on. What the ideal like, speech situation? Is this an ideal speech situation? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> How about this one? <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, the thing is, like, actually, there, again, I don't necessarily buy the system. I want to be really clear there. I don't, I don't necessarily buy the system and thus don't also necessarily buy the concepts. But they're not stupid. But they do, at a glimpse, kind of feel stupid. And this is one of the things we in the humanities and the critical social sciences often really get our dander up about when people do it to us, right? right? They, they get a little snippet of what we're doing, and they're like, well, that's stupid. 
Well, <laughs> it's like, well, no, man, it's a whole thing. It's just <laughs> that's the whole a, thing, man. It's a whole thing, man. <laughs> well, uh, no, just I mean, I will just hop in here um, uh, because I, I, I think actually your example is 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 kind of makes uh, in so, in some ways uh, you like my rhetorical move here. It makes the point I'm trying to get at, Ira. Um, <laughs> my rhetor, I can do some rhetoric too. <laughs> Um, uh, that uh, you read a snippet of a a much longer book and then you read the whole book. I mean, I will say in this case, like, and and I'm not chastising all of her work or her whole body of of research, which is extensive and and much, you know, much more, much, much, much more than mine. Um, But I'm saying this is a, this is a self-contained study. There is no more. I did read the paper and like, so I I think that's, that's a fair defense. No, no, hold on. Cause I am, I'm going somewhere else with it. I actually think that's a fair defense of your objection, especially to the, the soap thing. That sounds like a dubiously conceived instrument to me as well. Um, at best. Um, but I, I'm actually, what I'm what I'm interested in is instruments that, are popular that get used over and over and over again. And, and Lydia know, knows this, um, but I don't think you and I have talked about it, Kevin. Uh, my partner is a, 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 you know, trained as a neuroscientist, clinical psychologist. So um, it's something we've talked about a lot, right? I mean, you know, cause there's a lot in neuroscience that is, Overleaping the capacity to measure as finely as the the measurements would need to be in order to satisfy the societal demand for certainty. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good way of putting it. Um, and so, one of the things that I found myself over the years, quite at odds, by the way, I should be clear with my with my own scholarly training and disciplining. But one of the things I found myself over the years, like thinking about, it, is all right, so here we are in this world that does need points of grounding, right? And we're going to need points of grounding about that are behavioral. They can't all just be about, you know, cells. They also, in fact, have to be like technocratic points of grounding relative to uh, a human behavior at scale as in, enacted by individuals. And so like in this world, we're going to ask some fields to produce some heuristics, now, I do think there's a problem and where this is where we end up with, with these kinds of scandals, where we pretend that the heuristics are actually not heuresis, not invention, not sort of tools for invention, but rather epistemy, like hardcore, dead-ass knowledge. Yeah, so literally, yep, yep, yep. Mm-hmm, <laughs> I can turn that one over to you. <laughs> oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is uh, this is uh, conversation takes me to, to uncertainty. But uh, but to your point about um, the heuristic as this inventional tool versus as this uh, descriptive tool that's capturing reality as it is, should such a thing exist, um, and and for rhetoricians it really doesn't, then then we're we're really looking for something um, that's not really there, uh, because we are looking to um, to have certainty from an instrument that's that's really inventing what it is it's trying to to measure or trying to find. Um, and and that just doesn't work out. So it's unsurprising then that uh, that we then get kind of consternated about it, um, especially when there's you know some obvious manipulation of of a scientific instrument. So yeah, I think that that's one of the core tensions here. And then going back to this this need for expertise or this need for some transcendent, all-knowing someone to tell us what to do. 
Um, I think that that's, that has feeds into our faith in science as uh, this, this sort of transcendental instrument or apparatus or method for discovering the truth, the capital T truth, even though plenty of science and plenty of scientists would say that's not really what they're about. I do think that there is faith put in uh, science and scientific discourse socially that says this is how we find the truth. And certainly science has represented itself that way historically, and, and that still happens a lot today. So uh, clearly it's, it's all very messy, this reality we live in. And obviously mm. we want some certainty to guide our actions because we want to know what should we do. But it's simply not out there, especially with um, you know our, our postmodern abandonment of various traditions. So uh, it's, it's not surprising that, that people are kind of grasping at straws here. And this is this is why this and I love the way that you put this, Lydia. This sort of grasping at straws piece is why I'm actually I want to say, all right, well the the soap thing seems like it's grasping at straws, but by contrast, if there's a tradition of a bunch of people who might have all read Rawls, so to speak, um who are who are doing the newspaper thing as creative that doesn't intuitively sound reasonable to me but shit you know you read my work and it's not going to intuitively sound reasonable to you if you're not in the tradition right. and also possibly if you are um and uh and I so I just I'm not it's not so much that I don't agree Kevin to go back there mm. that your skepticism of the the, the newspaper uh, you know, uses of a newspaper is a good proxy right. for creativity. I'm not, it's not intuitively what your objection to that feels quite reasonable. I'm like, well, good God, like people, lots right. of people don't engage with newspapers, like what they can't be creative to like people, people who engage more with newspaper, I don't know, whatever. Anyways, I immediately start coming up with like, I have objections to that. And where I want to kind of corral myself. And this is why I offered the Rawls example is to say, yeah, but if there's a traditionary body of people who are using that, mm. it might not be a good instrument, but I want to be a little more cautious about it right. uh, or cautious about disparaging it simply because part of how we end up in a situation where people are grasping at straws um, is we we get too invested in the virtues of debunking. Right. Um, well, yeah, no, not, and well, first of all, I'm, I'm, I find myself troubled by your call to caution, but we're going to put that to a side. We can talk about that ah. later. I, I'm joking. <laughs> I find that troubling. Uh, I have you on the show to be <laughs> incautious. Um, no, um, uh, <laughs> but no, and, and I think that's a great segue. And, 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 and in some ways, this is a, that is a necessary and I think an important point and a point that hopefully can, um, uh, take the conversation in a, in a more, um, I think encompassing in an important direction because yes, my, at the end of the day, whether or not these are like a shitty instrument and they, they, they do a bad job and like whatever, that, that's really not a huge deal. But to me that in, in this scales up in important ways. Mm. And I guess <clears throat> this is a good conversation to be having between people who study rhetoric. I'm a political economist because for me, this is embodies a much more pernicious kind of set of narratives um, that again have very important political in terms of power, in terms of resources, um, that this rhetoric is wielded uh, to produce an orientation towards the world in line with, you know, with what Lydia was saying that have very, and to go back to what Ira was saying, actionable 
tangible technocratic outcomes. And, and I do agree mm-hmm. that if we, so long as we are going to inhabit mass societies as, as we do now, you're going to need expertise. You're going to need certain specific kinds of knowledge. But for me, uh, the, the classic kind of example that I always go back to is that if you, you know, if you look in political economy and in these areas, there has been a decades long mission to demonstrate that really giving money and resources and services um, at no or low cost to people who are struggling with poverty is bad for them. And really, all of the evidence we have is that it's just a bunch of bullshit. <laughs> and, and, and that's, I'm, you know, I, and that's just... And the pandemic was, and, and yeah, to get more, I guess, you know, uh, to, to back to the, the pandemic was a good example of that, where the, uh, in, under those conditions, a lot of people received huge amounts of resources and recovery and rent abeyance and, and so forth. And there was a lot of data that people's health got better. A lot of people's lives got better. Levels of stress went down. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm not just saying like, oh, it's, you know, magic, just get, but literally giving people money because it, when people's problems all stem, or a lot of them stem from not yeah. having money. But I'm saying there was a whole scientific discourse built around demonstrating that that is not true. So mm-hmm. that's kind of what I'm getting at is that how this scales up, yeah. not, and that I'm trying, I kind of, the only reason I felt obligated to, to home in on those specific things is to say that I wasn't just making up stuff out of thin air to give some kind of concrete examples. But I think I'm more concerned about how this scales up. And that and I wanted to to, to ask Lydia um, to, to weigh on this, because I think this, you you know, some of your initial comments and a lot of the work you're doing, I think speaks to this important issue about um, how because I, I think, it, you know, we Speaking of the pandemic, there was the, the mantra like follow the science. And, and, you know, I do try, I do believe in expertise. I do believe in, in, you know, scientific efforts to, to help us. You know, my son got a vaccine yesterday. Um, you know, maybe I just lost the RFK crowd, junior crowd, but, you know. <laughs> Um, he was vaccinated, you know, I, so, but so I mean, very, very lost. (laughs) So I, I have, I have that. I mean, I'm, 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 I'm in board with that, but I'm, I'm also very hesitant to just be a full sign on to the follow the science crowd because I, I realize how slippery this can be, especially not exclusively, but especially when we get into the quote unquote social sciences. And so Lydia, I kind of wanted to, you know, think how that plays out in terms of, you know, rhetoric and ethics and the sort of things you, you study and like this kind of fraught nature of the status science and scientific knowledge has within our society. Um, Yeah. Those are big questions. And uh, I, I... (laughs) Hey, that's what we do at the interesting times. (laughs) Right. I, I wish I had better answers than I do, which is that uh, as, as, as someone who's not a scientist, I don't have to contend with, with data in the same way. Um, and I get to live in the world of interpretation and in the world of theory building. Uh, and of course, that all needs to hang together through, through the, the logics that, that carry it forward. But at the same time, it's, it's certainly a different um, set of expectations. And so, uh, yeah, I, I wish I had more to say here, but unfortunately, I don't. Right. Well, I was thinking more where I thought you, you know, some of your insights could be, um, you know, interesting to 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 bring to this uh, conversation was more that 
I teach, you know, historical stuff. And I always have this, you know, mantra that like history is on the one level, like a, a, a set of facts, a set of things that happen. But history is also, and, and you kind of just hit on it there, a process of interpretation, of finding meaning, of, of pulling out meanings from these events. And I think science is very much the same. And so I know you're not working in science in terms of like, you know, collecting data and constructing hypothesis and so forth. Um, but I, I think, you know, you, the role science has as a discourse, you know, I guess is what I'm interested in and, in, in, you know, how that, um, you know, weighs into a host of issues from climate change to the pandemic to, education to, you know, to me, I think these are all a lot of discourses are really what's operative in the, in these, and that the, the facts don't necessarily tell us what to do very often. Can, can I add a piece of your question to Kevin's question? Please go ahead. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, I kind of where I would like a tinging of that would be like, what makes it possible for technical communication to have an ethics. Um, well, like if technical community, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Sure. Like, I mean, I, I, I obviously think that it does just to be clear, but I'm like, you're writing a chapter on the ethics of technical communication. I'm, I'm not, it's not something I, I work on. I'm not, I'm genuinely like, what, what are the conditions? Like what are the discursive conditions or what are the knowledge making conditions or what are the, you know, that tying it back to the stuff Kevin was just talking about that that make that make there be a need for an ethics of technical communication i mean you know that's not a challenging question right like that's that uh, not a not a disagreement question sure. like i absolutely yeah. agree that there oh is. absolutely and, okay. and there are several ways to answer that question um because there you could you could take it from an organizational perspective and and uh if you think of a technical communicator working within an organization they're going to have norms around behavior and and that's going to construct some ethical um, expectations for what a person does on the job and technical communication tends to be put in those in those organizational terms but it doesn't have to be um, at the same time one of the, the guiding pieces in the scholarly literature is about the fact that um, it's very easy for people in a technologically advanced society uh, in this case um, uh, Nazi Germany to go along with whatever the existing social ethic is, and to be contributing to uh, genocide and to slaughter without really, you know, taking into consideration what it is they're part of here. And so uh, in that piece, that author encourages folks in the U.S. to consider um, capitalism as our, our driving impulse and how um, as technical communicators, there is this strong uh, impulse to, to sort of be, as, as one scholar puts it, a more responsive tool to industry and and there's a big mm. pressure to do that socially as well but certainly from a humanities perspective that's a very narrow vision of ethics because you can have very different um scopes for ethics for example uh we might have some care ethical obligations to other people in the world so we should treat people in a certain way um and that doesn't necessarily involve being um party to cooking up a gas chamber or in the case of this particular um, piece of scholarship, uh, it begins with this chilling memo about the um, adjustments that need to be made to a van that was being used to gas people before the gas chambers went online. It's a perfectly written technical memo. Uh, it could be used as a teaching document because it is perfectly written, 
but it's obviously inhumane and monstrous. And it's talking about more efficient ways of ensuring that the, the quote unquote dirt doesn't clog up the drain that um, is, is kind of draining the refuse out of this band. So, so there is um, a real strong uh, potential for ethical abuses, especially toward, toward the other as this, um, this ideal person who does exist, whom I have certain responsibilities to, um, but, but to whom my company may not really care about and, and maybe pressuring me to act in certain ways that would reflect the organizational ethos, the organizational values, and even the social values. Again, capitalism not really caring about people's lives ultimately beyond a certain extraction value. And so, um, so this is kind of the kettle of fish for uh, ethical writing within technical communication. And, and we haven't even added in things like climate or things like uh, machine-assisted writing. And we go from there, and we've, we've got quite a bit to, uh, to talk about. It could go uh, well longer than, than this episode would allow. So I'll go ahead and stop here. <laughs> but, so so can, can, I, can I respond, Kevin, for a sec? Yeah, okay, okay. Because what I, I really like about what you're saying, Lydia, is it ties back a little bit to what I took to be uh, part of Kevin's point about how capitalism shapes the purposes of science. And so what I, I hear you saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is that sort of the, the ethics of communication that purports to and tries to and needs to be sort of um, often we would say fact-based, but let's say something more like like maximally adjacent to concrete material reality, whatever the fuck that means. Um, uh, 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 like the ethics of that communication on some level, precisely because it's purports to or needs to, and in the case of technical communication, uh, 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 sort of dryly does often uh, in the case of science, um, like the actual process of doing the science, constructing the instruments, blah, 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 um, is, is trying to get as close as possible to some core materiality of being um and precisely because of that the question of purposes are actually uh unanswered and unanswerable and a challenge more than uh uh, uh an easy place to find solutions I, I didn't tie that together really well but you know what i mean where i'm trying to go there yeah no and i think yeah um uh i i think that uh you know both Lydia and, and Ira you both hit uh you know kind of what I, I think how this you know very in in some level not majorly significant kind of scandal and probably more just a kind of you know within academia maybe it spilled out a little bit there was like a piece in the Atlantic that this really does tie into kind of these bigger questions about how and and for me this is something that I've really you know in, increasingly um, kind of come to, to focus on. And I, I don't think it's some sort of unique or, or wholly brilliant point, but it's, it's a point that we need to n- nonetheless keep coming back to because it, the issues are still there is that, um, and I think it's really tied into the comments Lydia just made, is that, you know, um, uh, in thinking about some of the examples she cited from, from, from Nazi Germany, that, um, you know, d- description and prescriptions based on what one is saying is descriptions are um, in a sense, also formative, right? That, you know, in, in that, you know, and I, I, there's a great book by Jill Lepore, who's a, a really popular historian, and, and she wrote 
um, a book about the kind of the the introduction of big data into politics, which is actually John F. Kennedy was one of the first people to try to use um, old punch card IBM computers to bring data analytics into campaigns. And it's fascinating. I mean, it really is a brilliant work of history. And one of the things she really points out is that um, the, the introduction of data into politics, again, and this is so I'm kind of piggybacking off her point, and I'm sure it's a point others have made, of course, um, that um, it was formative because instantly once you need to create kind of data about voters, you need to put them in groups. And once you put them in groups, those groups create identities that it's not, you know, there's no way out of this kind of loop, you know, and 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 to the extent that, you know, someone thinks of themselves as, as, as a a blue collar worker from the Midwest or something, or someone thinks of themselves as a country club member from, you know, um, New Hampshire or something. It's like these identities that were used to kind of package and, and, and create kind of digestible packets of data actually ended up being formative as much as they were descriptive, Mm -hmm. you know? And I think Mm -hmm. that really is an important, important part of piece of this that, it were, you know, and, and this gets into age old debates, you know, going back to the 16th and 17th century, right, with the empiricists and, and so forth. But uh, I think these are important debates that are still ongoing. And so just that's another old crack. Well, you know, this is such an old issue. And it's like, yeah, but <laughs> take a look around. So can I can, can I can, there, when you're saying that one of the things that really strikes me is there's at least two. Uh, really tidy ways of thinking about the difficulties here. And one of these are sort of how the data become data, right? I mean, that's that's the, the parameters, the discursive frameworks that makes the data count as data rather than just being being. And then the other is um, what ought to be done with that? What purposes uh, that ought to serve uh, in a way that's sort of cognitively available? What, what sort of self-understood purposes are, are there for it. And those strike me as like both fundamentally at stake in a scandal like this one, same thing with the Tessier-Levine thing, um, where the question of what's what's really happening is, a, is at play. And there's, and you, you mentioned uh, the, the Lepore's book. So there's this one thing, right? There's this thing about how, the frameworks for making sense of the data themselves reflect pre-existing interests, many of which are more or less unconscious, not necessarily cognitively available, uh, some of which are fully conscious, but many of which are not. And there's and here you have for, you know, just thinking about like algorithmic governance here, here you've got all the people who are writing about the digital redlining, writing about the ways in which um Facial recognition has historically cognized um, black faces as non-human faces in different contexts. Um, so you've got you've got this you've got this whole set of social meanings, this web of social meanings that's written into how the data happens, and then you've got this other thing, which I think is the thing that this particular scandal is more about on some level, which is like what are what are the purposes that drive a kind of intentional falsification or just standard slipping? Mm-hmm. And what are the purposes to which the data, the data thus collected is, is sort of consciously meant to be put. Um, and so like Tessier Levine at Stanford 
Um, a lot of a lot of his work that's maybe most questionable is directly <laughs> connected with uh, a biotech startup that he's part of, um, um, especially some stuff around um, Alzheimer's. And in in uh, Gino's case, uh, it's it's about this sort of vision that theoretically is about everybody, right? Celebrate rebels, blah, 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 blah. But really is actually about like, who's going to be in the C-suite, right? right? It's about what kinds of executives should we have? Oh, well, we should have rebel talent executives who uh, celebrate their dishonesty (laughs) because it makes them creative. Right. Yeah. Dishonest Um, people are creative. That's, that's a big, that was one of her, uh, a big finding. That was one of the retracted ones. Yeah, exactly. There's at the level of like the distinction between those two things, right? The, the, how, how the quote unquote data happens, how it becomes data, how the brute material of the world happens to become data through a set of uh, discursive operations and the purposes that are encoded in that and that reproduce society through their encoding of what counts as data in the first place. And the more conscious purposes that drive the the production of stories about that data and the mobilization of that data. What's really interesting to me anyways, is that that latter set is all about how can we pretend that whatever is aligned with, and here I'm just going to be sort of boringly Marxist, whatever is aligned with the <laughs> interests of the, uh, majority shareholder class, how can we pretend that that is in fact inherent in nature as such? Right. And it is just, it's a lot of superstructure. Yeah. It's well, it, yeah, this is the point in the podcast. I think I, I think I'm now on a streak of every podcast. I have to trot out uh, good old Jean-Jacques Rousseau, but I mean, I think that that's what, I mean, that's what Rousseau, I mean, that was his, that was his, uh, that was, I'm gonna do it. It's now my thing. I feel it's kind of my brand now. I have to do it. Everyone, all all of the dozens of people, all of the fives of people tuning in are waiting for that Rousseau reference. Um, but no, but quite seriously, he does. I mean, that's really it. Like, and I think that's where I do think because I, I have a, I, I'm going somewhere with this because I think a, a big buzzword in the social sciences which maybe hasn't infected the humanities but I think it is infecting the humanities now is this idea of quote unquote being novel it's got to be something novel and and you know and like it, problems just can't be enduring they can't be simple like there's rich people there's poor people how do we make that work and I, I mean maybe that's a bit crude <laughs> But that, I mean, you know, I, I you know, and, and it's got to have this like novel tweak and like, and that's a big thing in this. And so what you, what I see with, with Jean, you know, Francesca Gino, I don't think she's sitting there like, how do I do the bidding of like ExxonMobil and, and so forth? She's sitting there saying, <laughs> no. I want to get tenure. I want to be at, ten, at, at, at Harvard. That's really hard to do. And I give credit to anyone who's done it. Um, but to do that, I need knowledge. Anyway, I need knowledge. anyway, I need- I- I need novel novel findings and that's what we see here. I think when you boil it all down and, and I think what, why that's a problem. That's why I say like, you know, this is, this is a problem identified by Rousseau, by countless others. We could talk about Foucault and his discussion of how power is in discourse are connected um, is why we have to keep coming back to these enduring issues is because they are the ones that are at the heart of, 
you know, trying to find any sort of meaningful solutions, which do involve technical knowledge, which do involve data, which do involve collecting troves of information and analyzing it. I do believe that. But, you know, what, who is the ghost guiding the machine? You know, and that's kind of, I think, where Rousseau is still relevant because he was much more concerned about the ghost than the machine. Because, you know, a world of machines, you're going to get, you know, a, a very skewed understanding of the kinds of problems you're facing, you know, and I think that's an skewed understanding of what are the universes of solutions that that I, I think Iris point is is very well taken and an important point are going to be, you know, quote unquote, pointy headed, like nerdy technocratic solutions very often. I'm not against those. I like those when they but what what you know, what is driving that uh, I, I think is kind of for me, um, the important issue, not whether or not we need kind of data analytics and, and, you know, um, technocratic solutions. I think a lot of times we do, but, um, I think Ira's points get at that as well. Like who, who, who's guiding that machine or that who's, who's steering the ship of, of this collection and, um, uh, analysis and then ultimately prognostication or, 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 um, uh, prescription coming out of this. So, yeah. Um, I don't know. I mean, and to, and to go, hold on, hold on, just to go back to Lydia's core point about this, this P this, uh, uh, central piece in TechCom is it's also, then we have an obligation, not only when we're producing, but then also when we're receiving these different types of uh, nominally dispositive uh, discourse about how the world is to, to ask, and this is now I sound like the anti-vaxxer, you know, qui bono. I mean, to ask essentially to what purpose is this for and what, what, per, what obligations does that purpose impose on me over and above my direct situational or contextual obligations. Yeah. Well, I mean, to tell you the, the, the simple answer is my son was being a jerk yesterday. I was like, all right, let's go get a vaccine. You're going to get a needle. I'm just kidding. I'm not. I just kind of save up the vaccines and I wait till he's being a jerk. And I'm, <laughs> I'm totally That's kidding. That's how you make anti-vaxxers totally... and ki- kids of nature. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> um no yeah but uh no we were we were just lazy we we're horrible parents we we're like oh well, he's missed some vaccines can we get some he's like yeah you've missed about five which ones do you want to do <laughs> all right um so lydia yeah i, I wanted to you know uh, use just kind of any any thoughts or a way you kind of wanted to, to 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 get in on this in terms of thinking about um uh yeah how how is how do people or how do you know is kind of power and rhetoric and and issues of science like what you know what what ways do you think they they kind of play out in ways that you see in the world um above and beyond what you know particular things you research is there anything that kind of stands out to you or in terms of your own kind of experiences within academia oh, no small questions right um, <laughs> <laughs> I think uh, just just to keep it with with what within what we've been talking about here, um, it's again it's it's really unsurprising that this happened at, at a place like Harvard, or a place like Stanford, where proximity to power is um, so amplified, uh, where it, it isn't as amplified, but certainly it's there at uh, different kinds of institutions, and that uh going back to Iris point that that kind of drives the bus because if people are trying to access that level of power then they're uh in this case at least they're they're doing whatever they feel is necessary to get there 
And, and that's driven by, by the capitalist impulse to care a lot more about the results than about how we actually got to the results. And hence, I think that that plays into to things um, like, Kevin, you were bringing up with these um, measures of cleanliness that don't really, at least to me, track with, with what's going on with um, the actual uh, experiment or the thing that's being measured. So uh, again, I just, I just think it's all really unsurprising given the capitalist uh, era that we live in and the, uh, the, the push toward accessing power, especially if you're someone who's going to um, apply for a Harvard gig, get a Harvard gig and then uh, be eligible for tenure at Harvard. Uh, I, I, I don't love implying that there's a certain kind of person that does that because I don't want to impugn a whole group of people. But I do think that, um, that that is true in some cases, and this appears to be one of them. Right. You really do. Sociopaths are overrepresented <laughs> well, you'd really, in, in, you, in, in some populations. You really do have to kind of take on. I mean, I, I have some friends that, um, you know, I, I, I work at a, a small liberal arts college and I, and I quite love my job. But, it, you know, and I had to have some publication records to get tenure and, and so forth. So it wasn't like a free pass. I mean, and I, I think I worked hard, but. I know some people who are on a little bit of that that kind of track, and it is almost like it kind of strikes me as like being a partner at like a you know trying to make partner at a law firm, yeah. Yeah. you know, and you're just doing like seventy hour weeks, and you know I I I like what I do, but I I don't know, maybe I don't like it enough, but uh, um uh, so it, it no congratulations, <laughs> Kevin, you just did a degrowth, <laughs> but. <laughs> But I do, I do think like I, you know, that's some a window we that we we know from our own kind of career past that that you know maybe the public in general um, just out of you know lack of exposure isn't really aware of that like how if you want to be tenured at Yale or Stanford or Harvard the extent of the drive and the pressure you know and i'm not trying to like sing a, a sob story um or uh, an apologia but it, I, I think that's also part of this pressure cooker culture and, and i i really do think that goes back to this idea of novel and actionable that's at least in the social sciences give me something novel like i've never heard before which is going to create kind of this sort of soap stuff and newspaper stuff i'm talking about right because you gotta you gotta pump out something that's just like you're not going to give them the newspaper. Well, well, <laughs> well, I just think that's just, a, it's strange. And and I really do believe most of the creative people I know would scoff at, at such at being put to such a task. Um, but no, and I, I do think it gets that because that's another big buzzword in the social sciences is this idea of counterintuitive. Like my findings are counterintuitive. And, and, and that really gets into, you know, we could, we could trot out another name, uh, Gramsci, right? I mean, what's intuitive is obviously embedded in you know what he, he called common sense or senso commune right like this this like it's embedded like so the extent that you're finding something counterintuitive is also you know part and parcel to the kind of parameters about what is expected because as lydia really laid out i mean we're, we're, we're in a bit of a, a gauzy kind of you know area perpetual gray in terms of these things and you know common sense at least in my understanding of Gramsci is a way of kind of snapping that metaphorical kind of um uh um uh wave wave function you know collapsing it and like no this is reality and so to the extent that we're pursuing counterintuitive 
findings is is a function of what we've already decided is intuitive which is a function of power which is a function mm-hmm. of status mm-hmm. which is you know and and so you know even what sounds to be like i think it, th- th- that word always bothered me when i was a grad student because i i, I read a lot of quote-unquote counterintuitive findings i mean maybe this whole <laughs> podcast is i'm roping you guys into like some grievance laden uh, uh tirade against some of the papers i had to read for seminars in grad school and i would hey Kevin, no problem. This will be two hundred dollars. But no. Um, but more seriously, uh, I, I, you know, I, we, I, I think there's a lot more ground we could cover. But I, you know, this is good places I need to wrap it up. Well, 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 before we wrap up, though, actually, can I, can I, one, one practical thought? Yes, May I? Yes. Yeah, we'll allow practical one practical thought. thought here. Your caution, <laughs> your your call to caution and being practical. I, I find this the most disturbing output. And I've learned one thing I will say is I'm one of those people who trashes Rawls and have only read excerpts. And I realized that there, there's danger. Don't, that, that's like the dangerous knowledge. Like you read the whole book and I don't want to have my mind poisoned like that. So I will not read the whole book. That's... <laughs> you, 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 you took the step over the ledge. I'm like, I'm going to stay with my limited excerpt knowledge and trash Rawls. No, you're I'm... not wrong. The abyss is looking back. Um, uh... Right. So, but, but so, so this is the, this is one practical correlative as I take it of our entire conversation. Um, uh, obviously only one, uh, which is <clears throat> if there is something about some academic cultures that fosters more of gestures wildly, this sort of thing, than there is about other academic cultures. The fact that the academic cultures that foster more of this sort of thing are almost exclusively those that represent the expert consensus knowledge in public writing about what experts believe, that is an epistemic crisis. Mm-hmm. In other words, in other words, you don't want the New York Times just just reaching out to people at Harvard who have been themselves. Some of them are fantastic, amazing people. They're wonderful people who live incredible lives and God bless them. But, but also they've all been shaped by one or another version of this kind of pressure cooker, which itself then shapes the ways that they approach the research in the first place. Mm -hmm. Um, You want them also to be reaching out to folks like Lydia at Auburn or Kevin at Akita, or of course me at Northern Arizona. You know, no, no, I'm kidding. So, but I'm, I'm kidding, but also serious. Like that, what it really means is <clears throat> there's a real, there's a problem at the level of public epistemy where representative academics, in much the same way that representativity has sort of broken down in our larger politics, only represent a certain kind of viewpoint that's shaped as the kind of viewpoint, uh, and lots of people, this is not, I'm not saying something strictly novel. I'm just saying that all this really brings us to light. It's the kind of viewpoint associated with a very, very particular sort of knowledge-making institution, and society as a whole is poorer for not having this other set of viewpoints. Right. So it's not even strictly a justice question. That's a great It's that society as a whole is poorer without 
a broader cons- expert consensus view. Well, and, and just to have a little poke a little fun at myself, I mean, that I, I think, you know, the, I, I was contacted years ago um, by a journalist at Bloomberg um, to weigh in on, on, on a case, a court case um, involving the chairman of, of Samsung. And <laughs> he wanted me to give my kind of uh, some reaction to it. Like I wrote like a thousand words and it was like going back to like the <laughs> 1940s. <laughs> he did quote me in the fees, but I never got contacted again. He <laughs> <And then laughs> was like, Did you sh- shut the fuck up, man? I don't care. <laughs> I got to get this article out tomorrow. <laughs> spare me uh, yeah he was like i'm never writing this guy again um so i will if i since we're having we're having a bit of fun here i do want to just close with reading um the blurb that is on um the faculty webpage for francesca gino because i do think it does kind of summarize this and i it, it's kind it is kind of daft but i i, I think it's it you know okay this is about her book rebel talent why it pays to break the rules at work and in life We live in turbulent times when competition is fierce, reputations are easily tarnished on social media, and the world is more divided than ever before. Bold statement. In this cutthroat (laughs) environment, cultivating rebel talent is what allows businesses to evolve and prosper, and rebellion has added benefit beyond the workplace. It it leads to a more vital, engaged, and fulfilling life. Oh, man. I mean... I mean... That... Is she wrong? <laughs> like her data might be made up, but is she wrong? Well, I know, but it's just so syrupy. I don't know. I couldn't. I could. I could. And then underneath, there's like a thing that says, like it says, "Research colon it pays to be yourself." God. I mean, <laughs> I, okay, okay. But counterpoint, Kevin. What would be more yourself than making up your own data? That's the most yourself you can be. Right. Well, it, it does remind me of a great quotation that any any uh, acad- most academics who've kind of slogged over like some, especially I do kind of historical political economy. It's like I, I had an appreciation like Weber famously said he wrote his dissertation on like banking in, in Venice in like the 16th century or something, something like that. And uh, he had this line describing his dissertation. And it's like, uh, if any of my findings don't like necessarily square with what I have expected, he's like, you know, to paraphrase, it's like, it's mostly as a result, because the people, the, the records and the people I was able to locate weren't, unfortunately, didn't say what they should have said. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, that's great. And, and I mean, that's kind of a, a, a nutshell for what, you know, like, yeah, I didn't get the response to this. So I'm just going to freaking change it, you know? And, and yeah, I will. I do encourage listeners to please check out the blog site if you want to dig a little deeper, because it, what you will find, too, is that the mechanism for doctoring the data was pretty brazen and like pretty not really that difficult to unpack um i I said i don't want to bore you with the details but it's accessible i'm not a hard data person and i was able to understand how they found this to be so clearly and and i think that gets to lydia's kind of some of the points she's raised throughout is that when you have institutions geared in a certain way um it's not surprising one that this happened and two it was done pretty brazenly um yeah so that maybe that's a full way to kind of circle back um to where we started but thank you um lydia and thank you ira so much for joining us uh i really really appreciate it this was a great conversation and we managed to have a a quite a bit of fun um in in the meantime so thank you so much thank you thanks a lot it was a blast all right